0: and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks and God bless. Okay, well, let's get started. We're in First Peter chapter three. And the last few weeks have been uh, interesting. It's, again, one of these areas of Scripture that you don't jump into to talk to, whether it's about submitting to to government, where it talks about slaves and their uh, masters last week. And this week we're going to be talking about wives. And... (laughs) and their position and submission to husbands, but specifically uh, to a non-believing husband is the context is talking about. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Then they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adornment be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the kind, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. If we're going to start in this passage, what we need to do is first widen our gaze, because if we have to start with just these words, it's a pretty big hole to really try and climb out of. And we lose context. One of the problems that I've seen take place with a kind of through the Bible teaching is oftentimes you'll come to a new passage of scripture, a new chapter, and you'll start to teach from that as if it's standing on its own. And it didn't. It's connected to the whole of the book, and if we don't take that connection, a lot of times we can lose the meaning that is being presented here. Remember that this writing that Peter has given us, this letter, was most likely read out loud at the churches. And the churches met most likely in homes. It wasn't large auditoriums. It was probably a handful of people, maybe 30 people, maybe maybe a few more. But there was no PA system. There was no ability to communicate to large groups. And so it generally took place in a small group. And it took place with all the people that he's talking about. So when he talked about, you know, being subject to the authorities, there could have very well been Romans who were in places of rule in the same meeting with the Jewish people who were subjected to that rule. When he talked about servants and masters, there very likely were masters and servants sitting in that same house hearing these words. And the same thing true with wives and husbands that he's talking about here. And so if we're going to start with this, we need to start with the first word, or it might be the second few words in a new international version, where he says, likewise, or in the same way, because that is our context. That's the connection that we have. When he says, likewise, wives, what is he liking it to? What is his foundation that he's building it on? And that's what we want to look at here, because when he says likewise are in that same way, we see, first of all, in chapter 2, verse 13, hey, Rick, we, we see that he begins this saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he talks, first of all, in this governmental status, and we went over that, we're not going to go over that in depth here, but then he moves out of this public arena and he comes more into the home front. And he talks about masters and servants in verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so he moves from the broad spectrum to a more uh, personal aspect, masters and servants, And now understand that servants had the least amount of rights in anyone in the society. A a servant was a person who was lower than anyone else, even lower than wives or some of the women if they weren't in that position of a slave. And so now when he addresses to wives, he's actually speaking to a group that is above that of a servant, but in societal understanding, still lower than the men. And so that's kind of leading us into this place. But all of these things were connected to how we are supposed to be like Jesus, which he talks about in verse 23 of chapter 20 of chapter two. He says, when he, Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That entrusting himself is a submission. It's a form of surrendering himself. He entrusted himself to God who judges justly. God who is just, not the ones who were crucifying him. Not the ones who were betraying him. See, he subjected himself to that because he was being obedient to God. And these are all part of that word likewise or those words in this way. In the same way, this is where he's stepping from. Just like Jesus, just like you servants, just like you people are supposed to be subject, so he's talking about wives, but it's with an intention. You see, in each case, submission isn't because we're afraid or we have to. In each of these cases, submission is not forced upon the person but it's because we want to reveal the kingdom of God to people. We want to be Jesus to somebody. And so this idea of submission is connected to a bigger theme. It's not positionally, you wives aren't as good as your husbands. That's not what he's saying. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But what he is saying, wives, be submissive to your husbands. And it's for a reason. It's a very specific reason. When we talk about an idea of accountability, you know, you need to be accountable to someone. Is it because we have to? Because if we don't, there will be consequences. Like you're accountable to your boss at work. And if you don't go to work, you'll get fired. Right? Right? You're accountable to the the laws of the land because if you drive too fast, you'll get a ticket. And so you're forced to submit to these things because if you don't, there's consequences. You see, that that's a type of submission that I think our minds, or at least my mind, goes to. It, it's something that I do because I have to. But these aren't because you have to. This idea is because we want something else. It's because someone else matters so much to me that I'm real, really willing to rearrange my life for them. And so then I think of, well, I submit to my family. I submit to certain things because of my family. See, I have four children and I submit to the circumstances of my home because I want my four children to have a father and to have an example in a father. See, I submit to these other areas of my life because I want something for them. And so I go to work or I try to develop a healthy relationship with my wife because I want my kids to know what that looks like because I want to provide for my family. You see, it's a form of submission, but I'm doing it for someone else. I'm doing it because I care about them. And I'm willing to change the things that are easier for me because of them. And that's really what we're getting in this picture. He's not saying, wives, you have to do this. He's saying, wives, your submission is where you're rearranging your life because someone else matters to you. In this case, it's the husband. And again, it's the unbelieving husband specifically Specifically, that Peter's talking about. And so he's telling us that submission isn't an institutional evil. It is a godly characteristic. It's not something you are forced to do. It's something you choose to do because of how you care about someone else. And you see, this is an important dynamic of what he's talking about here. Because if it's just this command, you have to do something, and there isn't a motivation of concern that is healthy or connected to the heart of God, then it's not a good submission. Then it's not in line with what Peter's talking about. He's telling us that it's not this institutional oppression. It's a godly characteristic that few people living as free people are able to represent Christ to all people. So these few people who call themselves followers of Jesus that are called Christians have this ability to represent Christ to everyone, even in difficult circumstances, even under an oppressive government, even under a master who is harsh or not just, even to a husband who doesn't believe. The deep context of this is the believing wife and her unbelieving husband and how that affects the dynamic of that situation. A little historical backdrop. In the pagan world, the Roman world that they lived in, it was a very expensive and considered difficult nuisance to have a daughter. Sorry, girls, that's just the way it was. They didn't have the ability to bring in the labor. And so what they would do oftentimes was would abandon their children. They would just take them outside the city and leave them. They'd be eaten by animals or they would be sold oftentimes into slavery. Most often it would be in a form of prostitution at some point in their life. Just to give you an understanding of the world that Peter is writing in and what he's talking to. However, in the Jewish and Christian culture, that wasn't the case. They would not abandon their children. They felt it was a responsibility to raise their children. And so many of the women would be coming from this environment. And so now there would be an arranged marriage where this person is able to provide for this woman, and so they would connect them. It wasn't like we have today where they go out dating. It would be a prearranged marriage. And so many of these Christian women would find themselves being betrothed or engaged to these men who didn't know Jesus. Why? Because there weren't as many women. And so who, where are the women? Well, they're in these Christian families. They're in these Jewish families. Well, I need to get me a wife, and so we're going to go to them and get the wife. And the families couldn't keep affording these girls to raise them because it was expensive. And so it was actually for a benefit even for the lady to be married at a young age most often. Just to give you the difficulty of the situation. You see, we read these things and we interpret it in our culture, but it was a difficult time they were living in. Harsh things taking place. And now you find this young lady living in this circumstance. She's a follower of Jesus and she's got a husband who worships other gods or who knows what. And how is she supposed to conduct herself with this person? How does she represent who she is as a Christian? And he's telling wives, servants, and people overall that we're to be a visible representation of who Jesus is. You guys remember the Occupy movement that took place where it was Occupy Wall Street? Really an unusual movement. I'm not saying for or against it. I just want to talk about it because I know a lot of the people who were there didn't even know why they were there. It's like, why are we here? Well, because we're... Against the man, I don't, you know, they would be just kind of saying some things that they didn't understand, but there was a reason behind it. There was a feeling that the system is broke and we are part of that broken system. We're having problems with our education, not being able to provide, find jobs, even though we've gone through the system, something is broken. But what they didn't do is have an organized structure. They didn't have a, we're going to meet at this time and we're going to go home at this time. I'll meet you at seven o'clock and then we'll go home at five o'clock and then we'll meet on this day. They just kind of showed up and they kind of assembled and they were kind of a nuisance to all the people who were going to or past them on Wall Street to work. Everyone would see there's 100 people here. Who are these 100? Oh, it's the Occupy Group. What are they about? They're saying the system's broken. Well, they're kind of blocking my entrance to Starbucks. I need to get past them and and get over there. And so they were causing these kinds of problems, and all they were doing was showing up. Again, not really a vocal point, not really someone who is leading it, per se. They just kind of showed up and disrupted the community that they were in. And and Peter's telling wives, he's telling servants, he's telling us to be a visible disruption that the kingdom of God is here. You see, those people were supposed to be a visible disruption to your daily routine to tell you something was wrong. And so Peter's telling us, be a visible disruption to the status quo and let them know that the kingdom of God is actually here and showing up. Be that by just being there in the right way. And so he's telling us to show up in a sense for the kingdom of heaven. Now, later on, he's going to talk to husbands in verse seven. And so we think, well, he's talking to, you know, servants. He's talking to wives, husbands, but I'm not married. I'm none of those maybe. So, but in verse eight, he says, finally, all of you. So he's talking to everyone. So there's something we can learn from this, even if you're not a, a wife or a servant. Okay? We are to be transformational presence that the kingdom of God is among us. We are to be that presence and show that there is a need in their lives for that transformation as well. And, and so talking about some of the things he mentions here when he talks about them seeing the conduct of their lives by them occupying that. In verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Peter is not talking about just appearance. He's not saying these things are bad. Much like Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I've heard many a sermon saying that that's all about not drinking wine. And if you think that that purpose is, or the purpose of that scripture there is about not drinking wine, you've missed it. The purpose is about being filled with the Spirit. So if you tell someone, don't be drunk with wine... I nailed it. Boom. That's the passage. That's what it means. Don't be drunk with wine. That's what the Bible says. That was an illustration to what the point was. And the same thing is happening here. You see, that wasn't an anti-wine verse. It was a pro being filled with the Holy Spirit verse. And this is the same. It's not an anti-don't braid your hair, don't wear jewelry, don't wear nice clothes there. Nailed it. Cover that passage. No, it's not an anti-braiding, jewelry, or nice clothes verse. That's not the point. It's not an anti, but it's a positive or it's a pro inward beauty, inward quality that is to be noticed. And just like someone would notice if you were drunk because you are influenced by the alcohol, Paul said, you're to be noticeably influenced by the spirit. Let that be what people see. And just as someone notices you, if you get decked out. So ladies, if you put on the nice makeup, you put on the, the nice clothing, you dress up heels, whatever it is that you consider nice clothing, people will notice you. They'll say, oh, you look nice today. And just like people will notice you if you dress up, have them notice you because of who you are inside. That's the point. It's not an anti any of these things. He's just using it as an example. They will see you and say, wow, she looks nice. Wow, that person lives well. It can't be denied because it is seen in your conduct, and and I think that's powerful, and I think it's important because, again, I've heard, and you have probably too, uh, Bible studies that talk about, you know, oh, you got to be careful what you wear. Are you wearing it just to get attention? Well, of course you are, right? I mean, don't you wear nice clothes because you want to look nice? You know, give me that sackcloth. I don't want to be noticed today, No, of course you dress nice because you want to look nice. It isn't against that. Again, it's not talking about provocative or anything like that, but it's talking about you, you want to look nice. That's fine. But in the same way as you're noticed when you look nice, be noticed for who you are. Let that be the example of that inward beauty that's there. And, and, I think we need to recognize those things because no wonder people get so, you know, it makes people just want to stand off. You know, you can't, you know, dress nice. What is that? Oh, you can't. No, no, you got to be real careful. You got to be paranoid about everything. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Why can't I look nice? Why, what's wrong with dressing up and looking nice? I like people to tell me, you know, I look nice. There's nothing wrong with those things in themselves, but are those the only things you have? Or is there something inwardly that they're noticing too? You know what? You've got an amazing and a gentle spirit. And your example by how you care for people and how you care for, in this case, even your husband, can be an example that brings them to Christ. And then he gives the strangest example in verse 5. Verses five and six, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord and you are her children. And I was thinking, when did Sarah call Abraham Lord? There's only one passage where the actual word is used when the angels came and told Abraham that she was going to conceive. And she says, Lord, am I going to have a child when I'm young? I'm old. Am I going to have this? And it wasn't like in a reverence way. But when did Sarah submit to Abraham's decision that wasn't one that was beneficial for her? Can you think of one? One. That was actually, Hagar was actually Sarah's institution. She's the one who started it, though. He wasn't like, hey, do this for me. And she said, okay. Where's something where Abraham said, I want you to do this, and she submitted to what he asked her to do that we see in Scripture? Exactly. Egypt. Okay, so let's take that example. Here's Abraham, they're going into Egypt. And he says, okay, you're a unique and beautiful woman. We're going to go into Egypt. If we go there, they're going to see you're beautiful. If you tell them I'm your husband, they'll kill me so they can have you. Okay, again, the world they were living in. We look back and then goes, he should have had faith. He should have not said anything. He probably would have been dead. Okay, he knew his world better than we know his world. Now think of it for Sarah. If she says, Abraham is my brother, she gets taken off and put into a harem. That's what happens if she says, you're my brother and submits to what he said. If she says, you're my husband, Abraham is killed and she gets taken and put into a harem. See, for her, it's the same thing. She doesn't have an out. What she does by submitting to, to Abraham is actually save Abraham's life. And so this example that Peter is using of Sarah is one where we see Abraham isn't the good guy. Abraham is the guy who's in desperation and Sarah is the one who actually by her submission keeps him from being killed. And then God intervened and showed up. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing that by her submission to Abraham, going into this place, she saves his life. Who's the hero of that story? It is. Sarah is the one who kept him alive. And so Peter is telling the wives of these unbelieving husbands that they can be like Sarah. Where they can actually bring salvation and save their husband by the way they live their lives. And we are not living in as extreme circumstances, thankfully. But we see the same thing true where the conduct matters more than the conversation so many times. I mean, I've heard of wives putting scripture notes in their husband's sandwiches to try and save them. So when the husband's eating, he bites into a piece of paper and it says something like the wages of sin or death, you know, the gift of God. And I was like, okay, thank you for that. You know, or I've shared with you a friend of mine who, well, it wasn't a friend, someone who I knew, um, who went to church, who told me he used to witness to his neighbors by turning up televangelists really loud on his TV, right? And I was like, dude, that's just annoying, you know, that I, that's that's not going to bring anyone to your door except to hurt you. And so we see that conduct really has the ability to go further than sometimes conversation. And we see that Sarah's conduct saved Abraham, that she's the hero of that story because of what she did. And so it's important to see that these are the things that are in context and what Peter is trying to get to. It's really for the benefit of the kingdom of God more than anything else. But I want to talk about biblical submission. Because, again, there's been abuse. It's estimated that one in every four women are abused in the United States. Think of one in every four people here suffering abuse of some kind. That's horrific. And a lot of that can stem from that kind of male superiority attitude. And then you have places in churches that are promoting that with scriptures like this. And that isn't the case. At the time when Peter was writing and when Jesus was here, women did not have the right to an education. They weren't allowed an education. And so the fact that Jesus taught women, had them in his entourage, called them as well to be his disciples, was really outrageous. It was unheard of. But we see that that is the momentum and where things are starting. You think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Whose does he appear to first? It's the women. Women were not allowed to testify in court at that time. So if you were trying to make something up, you wouldn't go to the women to get a testimony because they weren't even allowed to testify. But the record is he shows up to the women first and their testimony goes to the men that make them inquire to go and find out if this has happened or not. It wasn't even until the 1920s that women were allowed to vote in our country. And Jesus is giving them the foundation of his resurrection all these years ago. And so we see that there is really a liberation of women taking place through the teachings of Christ. Paul called women as fellow servants, co-laborers, apostles, and deacons. He tells us that there's neither male nor female. Again, these are all things that are unheard of at the time. And so it's important to see that at the time that Christianity was being birthed, that there was also this liberation that was taking place in the hearts and in the ideas of the people concerning women. Biblical submission is not that the man is better than the woman. and has never been that. Culture has taught that, but not the heart of God as we see in Scripture. There's importance to see that even in Pentecost, the Spirit falls on women and men alike. We see that the women are allowed to be, again, overseers, deacons, that they are evangelists, that they are prophets, they proclaim the Word of God, and so I'm not going to go into the whole idea of women, but in this passage, what is not being taught are that women have to do whatever men say, and that's just how it is according to God. That's not the point. That is not what's being said at all. There's a difference between submitting, also, and surrendering. You know, have you ever been in an argument... I know you haven't, you know, and you're, talk, you're arguing with your wife. I don't argue. I'm a man of God. I don't argue. You're having this disagreement, and it goes on, and it goes on, and finally you say, I don't care. Do whatever you want. That's not submission. That's surrendering. That's quitting. And there's a difference between surrendering and submitting. See, submitting is a positive quality, not a negative consequence of a misuse of power it's how we lean in to the kingdom not how we deal with life it's how we make known the kingdom of god not escape a situation or forced into a situation there's a difference submission is never going against the lord the scriptures or even your own conscience You can't be forced to do any of those things. It's not allowing anyone to come into danger or suffer abuse of any kind. It protects children. It doesn't allow children to be abused or mistreated. That's not submission. That's criminal. And so... It's important to see these things and to make these things clear. It's also important to see that it's not wrong to want to escape abuse. If you're being abused or in an abuseful race relationship, you have the right to leave. You need to leave that relationship. If a man is mistreating you physically, leave, leave that relationship and deal with that issue you have to deal with it with police, deal with it police, but deal with that issue. And we see even examples of that in scripture. We see Elijah who is running to save himself as the king is chasing him and he's told by God to go and hide. We see Jesus when he finds out that Lazarus is sick and dying, he's on the other side because the Pharisees are seeking to kill him. He's actually leaving the place of persecution for his safety. Nothing wrong with that. We see David under Saul fleeing for his life when the king is wanting to harm him. Nothing wrong with fleeing. Nothing wrong with escaping the place of abuse or persecution. They're all examples of leaving a situation of abuse. So submission is never putting yourself in harm's way. And it's a shame that that has to even be addressed in the church, but it does because it's been promulgated through a misunderstanding and a misuse of scripture. That is not what Peter is talking about here in any form. Everything that he is talking about here is making the woman a hero and saving the marriage person who she's married to, the husband. It's all about leaning into the kingdom of God so the kingdom of God can be seen in you. It's written at a time where things were much different than they are now. But it still was not saying, yeah, you just got to take whatever husband throws at you. That's not what it's saying. And it's important we understand that so we can continue this liberation that needs to take place. That women can occupy the places that God has for them without anyone belittling them or saying they're not qualified. I mean, according to the New Testament, Jesus Is never mistreated by women and only has positive things to say to the women that he encounters doesn't mean women don't make mistakes but we see a real elevation of their role and I think that's something that we need to recognize and that still needs to be taking place in our culture today especially in the church unfortunately Are there any questions about this passage that we read? Thoughts on it? All right, let's pray. God, I pray that this would be helpful to us in our life. Lord, not just for wives, but an understanding that submission to you actually brings salvation to the people around us. Lord, that... It is something that we are not forced into, but something that we choose to do because it can benefit others, that we are willing to rearrange our lives, to submit to others, maybe to help our relationships, our marriages, maybe to help our friendships, maybe to help our children, maybe to help our coworkers see who you are. So instead of asserting ourselves or putting them down, we esteem them as more important than ourselves, even as you did with us, Lord. May we take that to heart and may it influence our lives so that you can be seen in them. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com